Thank you for downloading this podcast hosted by the Cambridge MBA for the New Game blog. Today we're speaking to a CJBS PhD student, Marlon De La Chaux, who recently spent some time in Nairobi. And during that time for her research, she observed uh, cashless payments in Nairobi. So she's going to talk a bit about her observations and what she thinks are the implications for not just the developing world, but also the developed economies as well. So Marlon, thank you very much for coming here. First, tell us, how does one pay using M-Pesa, which is, I believe, the most popular cashless mobile payment system in Kenya? Yeah, well, first of all, thank you for having me. So it's actually really um, simple to use M-Pesa to pay for virtually anything. All you need is any basic type of phone and a SIM card. And you then take your cash to one of the M-Pesa agents, which are virtually at every street corner in Nairobi. And um, you put the amount on your SIM card and um, through the M-Pesa agent, and you then have mobile credit. And you can just use that to transfer it to um, another phone or to pay your coffee or your sandwich. And all you do is um, you punch in the number, you specify the amount, um, you receive a confirmation text message, and that's it. You're done. You've paid. So you don't have to go through a bank or anything. It's just, Everything's through your uh, mobile provider. Everything is through your SIM card. That's correct. Yeah. So Marlon, why has M-Pesa become so popular in Kenya? Yeah, so I think um, you've actually just touched on one of the main reasons um, for why M-Pesa has become so um, big in, in Kenya. Um, about 70% of people actually use the service today in the country. And um, in Kenya, as in many, many other places in the world, um, many people don't have bank accounts and they don't have access to financial services. And I think there are two big reasons for that. One is that a lot of people live in extremely remote places where there just aren't, um, you know, bank branches and you just can't set up a bank account. Um, And then the other reason is that often the financial services that people require are so small in their transaction volume that banks are simply not interested. There's not enough profit to be made there. And M-Pesa manages to actually overcome both of those problems because all you need is a SIM card. You don't even need your own phone. You can share a phone with other people. Um, You need your own SIM card, and you can transfer any amount, even as small as 3P, um, to anyone else who has a SIM card. So it's 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 good for small payments. It's easily accessible through phones, um, and especially for remittances, um, that's very important. So a lot of people work in the cities and then send money back home to their parents in the villages, um, and they would have to take that on the bus and transport the money physically home with them. And now that's much easier and faster. It's just a couple of keys on your phone. Marlon, you recently uh, wrote an article for Huffington Post where you made the observation that while M-Pesa is so popular in so many transactions in Kenya, there's one big area where it's been, re- you know, that has been relatively untouched by M-Pesa, and that is public transportation. Um, why is that? Yeah, so this was something I observed when I was in um, Kenya for the last um, few months this summer, um, thinking that, you know, I can pay for everything with my mobile phone, but once I hop on a bus, I need my coins, I need cash. And part of that is because the public transport system in Nairobi is extremely complex and is a semi-private network, and cashless, cashless payments are actually threatening that network. Um, so people have tried to introduce um, cashless cards, 
sort of like the Oyster card that you have in London when you use public transport. Um, but that's not worked. And that is because um, currently there's no incentive for conductors and drivers of buses to use that system because they lose a lot of profit. So what cashless payment does is it makes the payment process extremely transparent. Um, so if I'm a conductor, I can no longer charge a premium for rush hour. I can't charge a premium for um, the rainy season when the streets are, are um, soaked and underwater. So I lose a lot of profit. Um, and essentially, it's, it's those conductors that need to push the system. So I've actually gone on buses and tried with a cashless, um, with one of the cards, um, and, you know, I've been told in this bus you can only pay with cash or I've been told, well, you know, our system isn't working. You can't pay with the card or um, I've just been told, well, we've never seen a card. We don't know how this works. So the, the conductors and the drivers of, of the public transport vehicles are really pushing back um, for fear of losing profit. Would it um, solve itself if they had a system where just like uh, in the London Tube, where there's differential pricing based on rush hour and you still use a contactless card or, or a cashless uh, payment system? I think that might be one one avenue to go down, but I think there would still be considerable resistance um, because part of the system is also that the owners of public transport vehicles, so of buses, um, don't actually drive them. They rent them out for a fixed rate, and then there's a crew that drives them. And that crew pays that fixed rent of the vehicle and gets to keep all the additional profits. Um, with a cashless card, you you turn that system around because now your um, owner of the vehicle can see the exact profit. So what they're going to do is they're going to stop um, leasing out their vehicles, and instead they're going to pay their crews a fixed amount of money and keep the rest of the profit. Um, so essentially, I think the problem with cashless um, cards as they work right now or don't work right now in Kenya is um, is that they're threatening that incentive structure and they're threatening to turn it around. Is it necessarily a bad thing for um, public transport uh, in Kenya that they can't use things like M-Pesa or cashless payment? So I think the question is a bad thing for whom? Um, you know, as a um, as a driver and as a, as a conductor of a public transport vehicle, my interest is obviously to keep the cash-based system because that way I can really um, make a lot of money and I can charge very variable um, prices. But um, as, as a commuter and as, um, you know, as I was myself um, every day when I was um, living in Nairobi, um, cashless um, payments would make um, things a lot easier. Um, you no longer have to carry around coins. Um, but not just that, also the pricing becomes much more transparent um, and much fairer. Um, so I think, I think it's, it's sort of asking for whom, and I do think for commuters, um, um, cash, cashless payments and buses would, would really um, yeah, improve the situation. Marlon, there's been a lot of uh, attention recently on mobile payments, uh, especially with the rollout of Apple Pay in the U.S. But mobile payments is still a very insignificant fraction of total transactions in the developed world, especially when you compare to, say, Kenya and, and the inroads that M-Pesa have made. Do you think that mobile payments will catch on in the developed world to the same extent as in Kenya? Mm-hmm. You're absolutely correct. Um, there have been a, uh, a lot of, of um, attempts to introduce similar systems. Um, I think Google Wallet was one. Apple Pay is the most recent one. Sort of similar systems to M-Pesa um, in, in North America. And, and they, they've been 
moderately successful, I would say. And I think um, one important aspect to realize is that Kenya is an entirely cashless society. Um, in comparison to that, in, in North America, 70% of transactions are made with, with credit cards or debit cards. So in Kenya, there's a vacuum. People, people wanted something um, to pay with, a cashless system. In North America, we don't have that vacuum there. Um, we're, we already have our credit cards. Um, and we have the habit of paying with cards. And habit are, habits are powerful and change extremely slowly. Um, that said, um, Apple Pay, for example, has partnered with a lot of huge retailers um, to try and push out their system. Um, but what has happened is that there are also um, competitors coming up now, and I think most prominently the Merchant Customer Exchange, which includes huge um, international retailers such as Gap or Walmart, um, are refusing to use Apple Pay because they, they're trying to come up with their own competing system. Um, and so that said, I think essentially for, for mobile payments to work, it's the retailers that have to push out those products and to push forward the implementation. And I think it is a very similar story to um, Kenya's um, public transport system where the retailers will ask, um, you know, what what is my added benefit from using this um, Apple Pay or Google Wallet when my customers already got a credit card and can pay with that? And similarly, as a customer, I will ask, well, what's my benefit? I've already got a credit card, and I know that that works everywhere. Um, and I also ask, you know, is this safe? So I think, I think those are a lot of questions, and I'm not sure we have the fully convincing answers to that yet, but I do think they might be um, coming in the future. Finally, Marlon, you are um, a Gates Scholar at Cambridge. Could you tell us a bit about how you're using the opportunities provided by the Gates Scholarship? Sure, yeah. The Gates Scholarship, um, it's been a tremendous opportunity. The scholarship um, brings together graduate students um, that have um, that exhibit leadership potential and, most importantly, that have a different uh, commitment to making a difference in the world. And that creates um, an incredibly rich and diverse um, community of, of incredibly passionate um, individuals. And for me, that's been so valuable because my research is inherently very transdisciplinary. I primarily study, um, when I'm not commuting in Kenya or I'm looking at M-Pesa, I primarily study um, entrepreneurs in challenging environments. So actually what I was um, doing while I was in Kenya is that I was working with technology entrepreneurs on the ground who were trying to set up um, businesses. And I was looking at how they overcome the many challenges that are constraining the way they can, they can start up a venture. Um, so for example, what do you do if the electricity cuts out every couple of days for an afternoon? And, and what do you do if the internet um, is extremely expensive and fragile and your general digital infrastructure is still sort of in its infant um, steps? Um, and I was trying to understand how do entrepreneurs still manage to set up a technology venture and become internationally competitive? Um, and that sort of ties into my broader research, which, which is very interested in entrepreneurship in extremely challenging environments and what we can do to help entrepreneurs overcome that. Um, and this was um, actually initially inspired by my um, work for the UN Refugee Agency, which was um, where I was working before I joined um, the PhD program at the business school. 
And um, it was a very interesting context because what I saw is that um, refugee camps are, are places that people go to when they flee violence, when there's no other option, when they have to leave home. And they often take nothing with them. They leave at night and they travel hundreds of miles. Um, and the point of a camp really is to give people a safe zone um, for them to wait until they can return home again. And they're provided with food, with health care, with shelter, with all their daily needs. Um, and they live in, it's usually located in, in extremely resource-poor environments. And yet in that context, many, many people set up businesses. And I thought that that was so fascinating to see how, you know, there's a lack of resources, a lack of long-term perspective, and a lack of support. And yet most refugee camps have cafes, internet cafes, um, repair shops, barber shops. I even saw a bridal gown rental shop in one of the um, camps. And so there's this common thread of, of, of people do set up businesses in the most unlikely circumstances. And how can we help? Um, and one solution that I saw in Nairobi and that I'm particularly interested in is um, our innovation hubs and accelerator programs and um, spaces that provide a workspace and resources to, to entrepreneurs who are starting out. And in refugee camps, we don't have that yet. Um, although it's become a common standard in, in places like um, Kenya, um, like Rwanda, like Ghana, like South Africa. And so one idea I'm pursuing and exploring um, with my research is how um, perhaps the, the sort of opportunities um, that are given through spaces might also benefit refugee camp entrepreneurs and how um, setting up innovation hubs and spaces um, where people can come and exchange ideas and work together might actually be a way that refugee camp entrepreneurs can also be supported um, in their ventures. Thank you very much, Marlon, and uh, I wish you all the best in your PhD as well as your travels to Kenya and beyond. Great. Thank you for having me.